Hello and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the new program on WEHC-FM and WISE-FM and also on podcasts where we talk to guests to explore the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and what we can do to begin to overcome it, a really critical task and a tough one. And today I'm thrilled to have as my guest Erica Edelson. Erica is one of the co-founders of Ruby, one of the very first people that I connected with in my quest to bring together some of the best thinkers, writers, and doers around the country to tackle this question. Erica resides in Northern California on uh, a diversified farm, and Erica is also the author of a book, which was the reason I reached out to her, called Beyond Contempt. It's how liberals can communicate across the great divide. So, Erica, I'm delighted to have you. You're, you're not only one of the central uh, pillars and assets of Ruby, but you've also become a dear friend. So thanks so much for being on Two Worlds, One Country. Oh, well, thank you so much, Anthony. I'm delighted to be here with you today. So I'd like to start because a lot of our listeners, I know some of them will have read your book, but others will have not. Give us the the thumbnail sketch of Erica Edelson, the trajectory from whence you began and kind of how you move towards really this this fundamental question of communicating across divides. Sure. Well, up until a few years ago, I'd been living and working in the very urban, very progressive bubble of Berkeley, California where I was a public interest lawyer for several years and then a writer and a kind of a freelance activist on a whole range of different issues, um, immigration, climate change. I worked a little on Bernie Sanders' campaign and door-knocked for him. And now I'm up in rural northern California, as you mentioned, um, and here it's uh, this area is much more mixed politically. It, it's still pretty liberal, but also with a strong libertarian streak. Um, and then it was right around the time that I was getting ready to move up here that you contacted me after reading my book. If I remember, when we first talked, it, it really struck us both that the left-right, you know, red-blue polarization that I wrote about in the book really mapped onto the rural-urban polarization problem Mm -hmm. that you were preoccupied with. Um, And from those initial conversations, we cooked up the idea of an organization that would really focus on how the political divide plays out in rural areas and what we can do to diffuse it um, and make it possible for progressive ideas and leaders to get some traction. And uh, from those initial conversations between us and then several others, um, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, Ruby, was born, and here we are. Changing the world. (laughs) It's like The Onion said, probably the single most important organization in the history of the world, I think. Probably. But let's, we're definitely going to get to Ruby, but there's this whole undertaking of your book, and, and I'd like you to talk about a couple of things. First of all, kind of your own journey, as we say, in certain circles, that, that brought you to this question of, of grappling with, with the, the negative implications of communication, how we talk to folks, um, a little bit about that. And then also, once you decided to really explore that question, how you went about 
getting the stories of people because your book has got a lot of things, a lot of deep analysis, but also quite a few stories of how people have been made to feel by different kinds of communication. Yeah, well, it was a journey indeed. Going back to 2016, by that summer, I guess like most leftists, I was starting to get very worried about the prospect of Donald Trump winning. Um, and, like, for a couple of years before that, I guess, I had been studying a communication practice called powerful, non-defensive communication. Um, and that's a non-adversarial approach to communication where what we do is we, we try to avoid putting the other person on the defensive because when people feel defensive, they tend to become even more entrenched in their position. Um, and the parts of their brain responsible for things like empathy and openness to learning new things shuts down. And I'd, I'd been using these non-defensive communication practices in my personal life, but up until that point, it hadn't really dawned on me that there was a political angle to it where it could be really useful. Um, and as the election was heating up that summer and things were getting uglier and uglier, I started kind of tuning in to ways that liberals, Democrats were communicating that really violated the non-defensive communication principles, mainly like the, the condescension, the scolding, the really dehumanizing insult. And I started thinking oh, my God, what if we are shooting ourselves in the foot and actually helping Trump get elected, right? I mean, it gets everyone, I think it's common sense. People know that people tend to vote for the candidate who they feel has their backs, not the one who's demeaning them. Right, of course, of course. So you said you started to tune into that. Was that tuning in, like, mostly national figures that you were hearing that kind of condescending language, or was it, you know, fellow activists on the ground in, in your neck of the woods? Where, where were you hearing yeah, that? It was, it was across the board, and it was the kind of thing where once I started being aware of it, then I saw it everywhere, just like saturating every corner of social media and every conversation I had and, and every article I read. Like, I could always find something from that point forward. It was really, it was really all over the place. Um, once you see it, you cannot unsee it, as they say. Um, and I'll just say and, that I can really attest to that in you, in that you just have radar for that, and and you will read a, a piece that might be a pretty good piece in a number of respects, but you'll f- you'll just find like a laser <laughs> those. Uh, elements of off-putting or condescending or denigrating language. You ju- you just really do have a, a deep sensitivity for it. Yeah, I, I should say, you know, before both of us make us make me out to be a saint, like I'm, I have been, and at times still am, just as guilty of all this as anyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a really hard habit to break, especially when when we're surrounded by it and when my my peer group is so steeped in it. Sure. So it's it's easy enough to fall into, but most of the time, you know, I think yeah, I do have radar for it, and it's kind of like nail, nails on chalkboard. I really kind of wince <laughs> when I hear it now, because I you know spend so much time thinking through the the political ramifications, which are are just so so awful. And 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 I think it's just 
it's kind of awful in itself in terms of what it does to society and our relationships with each other and our social cohesion. It's that summer, I think late that summer of 2016, I ended up writing an article for Alternet um, where I, I like, took the non-defensive communication principles and applied them, showed how they could be used in the political context. Um, so that liberals would have some tools for communicating more effectively across lines of difference. And the article went viral, which had never happened Hmm. for me before as a writer, and unfortunately has never happened since. Um, So I I thought, oh, wow, this really did strike a nerve with people. Uh, Can I ask generally, in that going viral, was it primarily people who said, oh my, yes, we should look at this, this is, you know, or was it people defending against that and saying, oh, this is ridiculous? What what kind of response was it that was viral? Um, it, it was definitely both. Um, you know, at a certain point, I, I couldn't I couldn't take reading through the comments anymore because there were hundreds of them. Yeah. Um, what, what was kind of interesting, and, and this was like before I was even really aware of the rural-urban divide problem, but I was noticing that the people who were kind of most keen on this and saying, oh, thank you, this is really helpful, I'm going to do this, and yeah, you know, you, you nailed it, were, were people in red states and rural areas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, more of the, the urban progressives of my prayer group were kind of like, oh, come on, we don't, we don't want to do this, and it's not that bad, and we, these people, right, quote-unquote, right, these people right. don't, don't deserve to be treated any better. Right. And then the really kind of interesting finale to, to the uh, reaction to the article was that um, I got an email from a conservative man who had read it, even though Alternet's very has a very liberal audience, but a conservative guy had read it, and he emailed me, and he was like, "Wow, you really nailed it. It is it is so true that when you liberals ridicule and scold conservatives, that that really works to the advantage of Republicans. I see it. I see it all the time. How people are." moving to the right in, in reaction to this kind of liberal scorn. And then he signed off saying, I tip my hat to you, but I apologize. I am not going to post your article. I'm not going to share it on my Facebook page because I don't want liberals to learn the lesson that oh you're trying goodness. to teach. <laughs> I know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, wow. I assume he, was, he, I, he might have been half joking. But yeah. when I read that, I thought, I'm going to write a book about that. That's so cool. That is such a, that's so, so cool. So, so you embarked on the book. And, and as I said, the book has a, a lot of deep analysis. And, and it also has a lot of stories. So tell us a little bit about how you gathered those stories. And maybe give us an example or two of some of what those people that that, that gentleman was was describing said to you. Yeah, some of the stories came from my own experience canvassing for Democratic candidates Mm -hmm. in Kentucky uh, and in the Central Valley of California. I was canvassing with uh, Working America, AFL-CIO. And once I decided to write the book, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I better start practicing what I preach here because Mm -hmm. I have been in a liberal bubble my entire life, and I only have the most superficial and stereotypical understanding of what conservatives think and feel and care about in their worldview. So I better actually get schooled um, and start talking to conservatives. 
So I started attending cross-partisan dialogues sponsored by the group Braver Angels. It's a national group. I really recommend it for anyone who has or would even like to start a, net, a uh, local chapter in their community. They, they do really, really wonderful events where they, they bring people together for what they call um, red-blue workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, a, it's like a structured, facilitated half-day or full-day session where you know, people really get to have their say and listen respectfully across the aisle. Um, and it's, it's very well done. Yeah, I learned a lot um, and, and made some friends across the divide uh, from participating in those sessions. Other than that, the way I do research, is it's pretty haphazard. And I, I kind of just followed the breadcrumbs into every Internet rabbit hole I stumbled into. I, I read tons of reader comments on conservative websites like like the American Conservative and some of the others to try to get a feel for how they were reacting to liberal scorn um, and and then sometimes I would reach out to them if I could if I could figure out a way to reach out to them I would and, and interviewed them I also interviewed a woman who told me about her journey from she she had been an active neo-nazi convicted of you know, a hate crime, a violent wow. hate crime. Wow, wow. And she deprogrammed from that, exited the hate movement, and is now running a group called Life After Hate that supports people who are trying to leave hate movements. Mm-hmm. And I really thought it was important to include that and a handful of other, uh, I'll call them redemption stories, because one of the things I've noticed is liberals and progressives tend to think that people with opposing views, especially if they're, you know, pre- prejudiced, racist views, are are utterly beyond redemption, have no redeeming features, and will never change. And if that's our working assumption and we write off half the country that voted for Trump, that's that's not a winning strategy. Give a, an example or two from the book or from other experience of some of what you were told. You can either directly quote if you have the book handy or you can paraphrase. But I'm thinking, for instance, there was uh, one fella in the book who characterized himself as kind of moderately liberal and moderately well-educated and went on to talk about um, how he kind of struggled. You know, he, he mowed his own grass, he shopped frugally, this, that, and the other. But because he was a white guy, he felt like the message he got from the liberal media and, and liberal pundits was that he was just extremely privileged. Do you, do you know who I'm talking about? Could you say a little bit more about him? I would say that that was such a common story that I was seeing, like I mentioned, I was reading the comment section mm-hmm. on, on conservative websites, and I was seeing that all over the place, and I was also hearing it a, a lot from the mostly white men and some white women um, in the in the Braver Angels groups were, were really complaining very, very heavily about that, and they were very aware and concerned because they were seeing it in themselves, and they were seeing it in people they know, that there was this sort of um, allure of of the ethno-nationalism that, that Trump had on offer um, because they were sort of made to feel um, left behind or disregarded or disdained. Pushed into more welcoming arms, in a way, people who weren't telling them everything that was wrong with them all the time. Right. Yeah, I think one of, one of the guys, I think I have this in the book, said it's like a warm bath, like a, a Trump rally or the things that Trump says... It, it feels like sinking into a warm bath um, compared to the kind of scorn that they were finding 
in other quarters. Um, so there was, you know, uh, I think I was a little surprised at, like, by how high the level of awareness was even of people who saw it happening in themselves and didn't like it. And they, they mm-hmm. were aware that it was happening mm-hmm. and they were being, you know, pretty, pretty transparent about their own process. <clears throat> when you say it was happening, you mean like they were being sort of gradually brought into the fold of a more nationalistic yeah. and yeah. ethnocentric and all that. Well, yeah, and-, and part of that is like another observation I remember um, someone having, and I'm actually going to pull pull the quote out of the book here. People were aware that when the media attacked Trump, that they that they were kind of taking that as an attack on them too, mm-hmm. um, and so. So here's, here's a quote from the book. There was a West Virginia man who was a Trump voter, and he was talking about, you know, the, all the, the media attacks on Trump. And he said, as the hit pieces against Trump kept coming in, it seemed to many that Trump was being unfairly victimized by the media. Perhaps we sympathized with him because, as people from the hills who have also been rejected by the establishment, we know what it feels like. And I mean, I think that's just. I mean, we sure we can be we can be upset that people have that reaction, but I think what he was expressing is such a profound truth about human behavior that we we bond with people who are attacked by the same group of people who are attacking us. Yeah. And that's and and Trump is. So, so good at leveraging and weaponizing that dynamic and, you know, kind of cementing that bond of shared victimhood. And then, you know, he is going to be the savior. He's going to own the libs and bring them down a peg, put them in their place. Um, And that makes people feel like really good and protected and, and seen. So it would be better if we didn't play into that chapter of his playbook. Yeah, and I think on our side, oftentimes we don't realize how we frequently have the same kind of pretty visceral response. If you if you read through any of a number of liberal newsletters and publications, I won't name them here, but you'll often see that what whatever the article is that uh, somebody is writing it will have in the headlines something like, you know, DeSantis crushed by reporter or somebody else taken down or, you know, they they use this language Uh which excites us as well that some of our perceived enemies are getting their asses kicked. And that's what draws us in. It's really a pretty much a mirror image, it seems to me, even though I think a lot of us on the liberal progressive side don't recognize that we respond similarly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, all those clickbait headlines and, you know, YouTube titles and all that, like, right, you can get all worked up feeling like, oh, yeah, well, we're our team is like destroying this person and owning that person and crushing that person. And then if you get out of your social media algorithm and start seeking out the parallel universe of, of right-wing media, it's right, like you said, it's exactly the same. No, they're all uh, owning this lib and that lib. Um, it's just, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't get us anywhere. And it just kind of keeps like fueling these, these cycles of, of contempt and, and vitriol and makes us all more alienated and loathing each other more and more. 
So I want to get to one thing I'd like you to address is to what degree do you think that moving away from contemptuous language potentially opens our minds to other points of view? I've heard you share that as you've spent more time in rural and spent more time out of the liberal bubble, some of your own thinking in in fundamental ways has also begun to shift. So I guess what I'm asking is, is the communication piece more than just a means to an end, or might it actually shift our perspectives in different ways? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like a silver bullet. I think what I would say is, like, if, if we are hoping to have an impact um, on, like, prompting people to rethink views that we disagree with, removing the contempt alone isn't necessarily going to do it. But that said, I don't think it can happen without doing that. So it's kind of like, it's like the first and most crucial step. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, there, there's other communication principles as well. But the contempt itself or, you know, being judgmental or self-righteous, those things are just such, they're such killers, you know. They're, they're so off-putting and alienating that, like, the conversation is, is going to be over before it even begins. I was thinking of, I was just listening to a podcast that somebody shared with me actually this morning, and I had plenty of of criticisms of the podcast itself but the two people talking it was under the the title of the podcast was uh, can we overcome the rural urban divide and um the the main host was at several times in the interview he said first that he just didn't see why uh rural people uh, felt this about this disdain he didn't use contempt but this disdain and this uh-huh. get being put down by by urban elites he just he thought it really didn't happen much and then in the next breath he would talk about whether or not people wanted to live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then and then in some cases expounded on just how much it was the middle of nowhere with nothing to do no interesting things no interesting people and i thought he, his language isn't just language. That's really his view. He really does think down on rural areas. He doesn't think there's much of anything worth going to there. It's all flyover country. Well, I mean, look, I can I can understand it because I think for for someone who grew up urban or suburban their whole life and had very little contact with rural areas except maybe, you know, as a tourist in the national parks or something, it's as, it's as unknown to them as, like, you know, conservative viewpoints were to me, having grown up in, in liberal Maryland and New York and, and then Berkeley, California. I do understand how it happens and how people could be so incredibly unaware, and then they're just picking up on, on whatever kind of the, the mainstream gestalt is and you know i really think that this anti-rural um and anti-working class really is like the last bastion of socially acceptable bigotry Mm -hmm. i I think there's much more effort to understand the social and economic forces working against urban people um than there is you know understanding of how those forces work against rural people but the assumption the assumption in rural is they're just stupid rednecks who are backwards and racist, and so they, they brought this all on themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, li- like, literally, I have seen headlines, no sympathy for the hillbilly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, you know, if you don't, if you don't have experience, um, if you don't know rural people and haven't spent time there and all you're seeing is like headlines like no sympathy for the hillbilly and constant references to most of the country as, as flyover country, you know, I think it's, I think it's inevitable that you develop these these prejudices and biases and lack sure. of understanding. Sure, sure. Well, we have just a few minutes left. So, you know, what, what Ruby is trying to do is to overcome the divide, not, not just so that we can all get along better, although that would sure be nice, but so that we can actually build a better country, so that we can forge policies that that uplift working folks and those who are poor and others, and that we can do it in a way that is across class and across race, basically uniting people who are right now very much divided in most cases. So from a, and, and, and Ruby, as you are well aware, because you're in the thick of it, is, is tackling that at uh, multiple levels. But from a communication point of view, what would you say would be a couple of the most important first steps for liberals, for progressives, to consider about how their communication might um, change in order to open up the possibility of this communicating across class, across geography, and, and across race? Sure. Well, in addition to what we just talked about, you know, dropping the sarcasm and mockery and name-calling, um, I think there's mm, three really important things. Um, one is when you're voicing your opinion, it's better to be subjective instead of putting it out there like, well, the fact of the matter is to make it more like, well, this is what I believe. This is how I see it. This is my opinion. Um, even, even if you are 100% sure you're right, <laughs> because we're all wrong about something, but we don't know what that something is. So it really does behoove us to be humble. And, and that humility goes a long way toward making people feel open to hearing your point of view. So I would suggest trying to go into a conversation, asking yourself, what can I learn from this conversation? And also go into it being willing to learn something and being willing to be wrong. Um, and that will, that kind of shift in mindset will prevent you from, you know, coming across as, as arrogant or know-it-all or self-righteous. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is, like, before you even start getting into what your take is, um, try to understand where the other person is coming from. Like, get into the curious part of your mind and ask the person questions that really stem from your genuine curiosity. Like, and I can particularly say this because I used to be a lawyer. Sometimes our questions are really not curiosity questions, but they're like uh, we're, we're laying a trap. It's it's like a series of it's like an interrogation that's mm -hmm. uh, trying to entrap the other person and make them look stupid. Um, but like, no one ever changed their mind because someone like told them that they were stupid. So just ask questions to to really genuinely try to understand where they're coming from. And this is this is very conducive to a respectful, kind of establishing respectful rapport. And then when you are sharing your views, I would say don't don't try to persuade them. Like the more you belabor the point or insist that you're right, the more dug in the other person's going to get in their view. So just say what what you believe and why you believe it and then leave it there. Um, they might agree. They might agree in part. They might not agree at all. They might think about it 
some more later. You've planted a seed and you're done. Those are excellent rules of thumb. And, and I think the last one, well, all of them, I think, are tough for us liberal progressive types. But the last one seems to be tough because many of us have such a sense of urgency we can't just plant a seed and hope it'll grow because the person felt respected. There's no time for that. <laughs> you know, I mean, the climate is, is moving towards catastrophe and income inequality is a disaster. And all of that is true. But my goodness, that sense of drilling in the information to change these people's minds just hasn't worked out very well. So it seems like a somewhat more patient strategy, even though it seems like there's not enough time for patients, might still be more productive more quickly. I think so, and I completely relate to it being very hard to step outside of the urgency of our agenda. Like, we, we are in dire straits on many fronts, and I have become convinced for myself that every argument and every attack and every gotcha is a step backwards. Mm. I just have to remind myself of that all the time. I wish it weren't that way, but I truly believe it is. The more patient and respectful approach, I believe, is the only path forward. That's a great way to end. Oh, so delighted to talk to you today, Erica. My guest today on Two Worlds, One Country has been author, activist, and founding member of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, Erica Edelson. Uh, Erica is going to be continuing her work with Ruby. She's taking a short hiatus to focus with her husband on their farm in Northern California, but she is a powerhouse of information and analysis and empathy, and it's a delight to have you on the program today, Erica. Thanks. Thank you, Anthony. Take care. All right, you too.